Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Oh, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Exodus. We're going to begin in Exodus 4, walking through the narrative. But if you turn to Exodus 6, that'll be the first section I'm going to want you to look within your scriptures. We are continuing in the series that Maggie talked about called Liberated. And the focus of this particular series is to see the rhythms by which God frees his people for something greater. Now, if you're with us last week, we opened by looking at the first three chapters of Exodus and we looked at the kind of person that God liberates. So we used Moses as a stencil to be able to see the way in which God called Moses from the slavery he was in to relinquish all the things that made him comfortable so that God could use him for something greater. So last week we talked about the kind of people that God liberates. Today we're going to focus on the rhythms in which God liberates us. And it's one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament. It's looking at uh, Moses' interactions with the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and how God used plagues to bring Pharaoh to not repentance. He never actually got there, but he brought him to his knees. I've entitled today's message, The Battle of the Gods. And you can take the word gods and make it a small g or a big g, whichever one you want. But the point is that God is setting out to do something through Moses that the entire world needs to witness. And that's what we're going to look at. So what I want to do today is just show you the rhythm by which God liberates us. So let's begin by simply saying it this way. God liberates by the might of his own hand. And I'm using Old Testament imagery here. That God reaches out his, it often says he lifts us up with a mighty arm or releases us with his mighty hand. And it's showing the power of God, this pure, raw, uncontrolled or uncontrollable by man power. God cannot be stopped. When he reaches for what he reaches for, he gets it every time. And we're going to see this displayed here in this text. God had called Moses to go back to Egypt, the place of his greatest failure, where he's wanted and there's a death penalty on him for what he did in killing an Egyptian to protect the Hebrew person. And he has to go back into Egypt and God says, I'm going to send you to liberate my people. And he's going to, he's going to walk in and God is going to say to Pharaoh who considers himself a God and who serves the gods of Egypt, he said, I want you to walk into his palace. I want you to walk into the place of his strength. I want you to go in with fear and I want you to go in with power And Moses, none of it has to do with you. I want you to go in in my power. So Moses, he toughens up. He heads to Egypt. He walks into Pharaoh's court. He's been there before. He walks into Pharaoh's court and he says, the Lord, the God of Israel says, let my people go. Pharaoh responds, I don't know your God and I'm not going to do it. Now you think for a moment there, I want you to just, because you know the story and you've seen the movie every Easter, right? It's really easy for us to go, and I know how this ends. Don't let it end yet. Walk through it. Can you imagine what Moses was feeling in this moment? He steps into boldness. He steps into courage. He walks into the king of Egypt, and he says, you're going to let these millions of slaves that you've held against their will, and you've punished them unjustly, you're going to let them go? And he says, nah, I'm not. I don't even know what God you're talking about. And then Pharaoh decides that he's going to up the game, and he says to the Israelite slaves, I'm going to take away all the supplies that I've been giving you every day to do the jobs you've been given. 
You're still going to need to do the same amount of work every day, but you're going to have to go and get your own straw and your own materials. You're going to have to create the same amount of bricks to build the the great temples and and artifacts around my nation. You're going to have to continue to do it. And should you not meet your quota, I'm going to beat you. And I'm going to beat you without mercy. Of course, he gets what he wants because the Israelite elders come to Moses and Aaron. They're like, what did you do to us? Life was hard enough the way it is. And now you've just doubled down. And, and now we're getting beaten every day and people are being punished. Why didn't you just leave us alone? And this is a trend that manifests itself throughout not only the book of Exodus, but it goes to the entire story of the Old Testament and it even begins to creep into the New Testament. Here's the rhythm of what happens. We love our routines. Can, dare I say, we love our slavery. At least we know what it is. It doesn't catch us off guard. We know what our routines are. We can operate within our routines. We're not being punished. And so we just, can't you just leave us alone? Let us live the lives we're living, even though it's not taking us anywhere and it's not ever going to deliver us. We just live in the slavery that we're used to. True freedom to worship that which we can't control is more threatening. God sends me into my worst condition. Things are, are worse now than if I hadn't gone in his name. How is this supposed to be good? I want to recall something that I mentioned to you last week because it's it's the foundational truth that we have to hold on to. The call of God will complicate your life. But without the call of God, you'll never be free. I want you to reason with me today. The call of God will complicate your life. But without the call of God, you'll never find freedom. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, now Moses had gone and complained to God. The Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. You might remember that's a moment where Moses said, well, who do I say sent me? He said, tell him I am who I am sent you. And Moses is like, oh, okay. He's reminding him. Do you know who you're talking to? I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Moses is reassured that the God of Abraham, that the God of Isaac, that the God of Jacob is the God of the faithful covenant. When he says, I've never used this name with them, he had revealed himself as Yahweh, but what he's saying is, I have never revealed myself in this way. I have never showed the almighty God that I am in this powerful way. I am going to flex. And when I flex, the world's going to know who's talking. And the world's going to understand. Seven times in these three verses, God says, I will. This is so important to, to pull this off that I want you to catch this with me. He's saying to Moses, I don't need you. I am calling you. I am going to put you in a place to speak for me. But don't think for a moment, Moses, that you're the rescuer. 
that you're the deliverer. This will pay off so far down the line. In the next week, you're going to see it. This pays off because when the people gripe about Moses, Moses says to God, I'm not the thing, remember? It's not about me. If they hate me, they hate me. If they don't want to follow me, they don't want to follow me. I'm trying to display you. Moses catches on. So Aaron and Moses go back repeatedly. And slowly but surely, God will reveal his power. He will reveal his supremacy. But here's what I want you to know as well. I have often asked in the darkest parts of my heart, not like the sinful parts, but those parts that, you know, you don't say the inside part out loud. There were many, many moments that I thought, God, why did you take 10 plagues? Why didn't you just come in with the biggie right away? Just knock them off their feet while the crowd flex like you've never flexed before. And then we just move the story down the line. And then I got instructed. Why does God take 10 plagues? This, these 10 plagues, if my study is correct, took over 10 months to happen. And we know that because it happened in certain seasons of harvest and certain seasons that if you do the calendar, they come anywhere between 10 and 11 months for this to happen. Why did God take an entire year and 10 plagues to display his power? And look at it this way. God was not only displaying it to the Egyptians. God was displaying it to the Israelites. Everybody was catching on. The glory of God was being displayed to the entire world. So God brings out three plagues. And I'm just going to walk through these quickly to show you the significance of them. And and I can't go into all the detail I want, but I want to show you this. In the first three plagues, he strikes the water and the ground. The Nile River turns to blood. Frogs rise up from the devastated waters because they can't survive in it. And they come onto land. And it says that the frogs end up in their beds, in their cooking pots, in their kitchens. Are you grossed out yet? We can simply go, yeah, they had a bad day with frogs. No, no, you need to understand. These frogs were everywhere. They were in everything. They were looking for water. They were looking for safety. And then the dust is thrown into the air and it turns to gnats. There's a pretty powerful moment at the very beginning, though. Uh, Aaron and Moses go into Pharaoh's court, and Pharaoh says, well, show me your power if you're so powerful. And Aaron takes the stick that God gave him, and he throws it on the ground. Remember, it turns into a snake. And everyone's like, wow, that's cool. But the magicians of Egypt come in, and they take sticks and throw them on the ground. And their sticks turn into snakes. And I remember as a kid going, man, God, you misjudged this. You thought that was going to work, and that wasn't very impressive. But I forget to read the next verse. Aaron's snake ate all the other snakes. This is God's first moment where he looks at me. He's like, oh, that was cute. Watch this. It may be the foreshadowing of what God is going to do. My power is going to swallow your power, Pharaoh, and you're going to know who the real God is. So the first three plagues strike the water and the ground. The next three plagues, which are swarms of flies, and according to my research, in the Hebrew, biting flies. Now, having lived in Michigan and walking in the woods in the summer night when it was cool, being chased by a a demonic horse fly for the entire three miles was torture because you heard it, it was flying around, it didn't land long, and every time it landed, it pinched. Can you imagine your whole house and everything by horse flies? The death of their livestock and their human skin was covered in boils, So God had struck the earth and the water. He had struck human flesh. The third group of of, uh, plagues, he strikes the sky. He brings hail from the sky onto the earth. It kills 
animals, it kills humans, it destroys property. He brings locusts on the east wind, an unusual occurrence, and whatever is remaining that the hail did not destroy, the locusts eat. And then he blackens the sun. Why 10 plagues? Why one year to enact them? Because God, if you notice, has been picking off every Egyptian god one by one. The three levels of gods to the Egyptians, they had a level of God that took care of the earth, they had a level of gods that took care of humanity, and they had a level of gods that took care of the sky. In fact, the greatest god the Egyptians had was the sun god Ra. And when God blackened the sun and Ra could not light it up, all had been exposed. Three levels of discerning to the people of Egypt and Israel that their gods were inferior, their gods were false, and their gods had been defeated. But God's not done. God's not done. God does an amazing thing here. He brings in the 10th plague. It's the death of the firstborn. It's sad. God calls for a moment of repentance, and he gives them an opportunity to escape it. But he says, the firstborn of every family And of your cattle will die in the middle of the night. From the poorest of the poor, he says, from the firstborn of the slave girl to the richest of the rich to Pharaoh's son. Those that do not repent and do what I ask them to do, who do not bow to me, they will die. It's harsh, isn't it? Innocent children that had done no harm. Well, here's what I want you to see. Pharaoh's son will be killed by the 10th plague. Pharaoh's son is the son of a god. Maybe the last god that tips over is Pharaoh because he's exposed that he cannot, he cannot save his family. He cannot stop this from happening. His son would be the next god to replace him when he died and the real god has brought down a mighty and outstretched arm. And do not forget, in a world today where we question every one of God's motives, do not forget the number of opportunities that God had given Pharaoh to repent. And some of you will come up and say, yeah, but God hardened his heart. Be careful of what you do with this. Because sometimes the same sun that softens clay hardens, or softens wax rather, hardens clay. When God showed his might to Pharaoh, Pharaoh would not soften his heart, knowing that God was more mighty than him. So he hardened his heart in the presence of God, and God kept pushing that button. He kept leaning in and showing Pharaoh, you're not who you say you are. And Pharaoh, instead of repenting, he blasphemed. He became stronger and more bold and bullheaded, and he paid a great price. The battle of the gods was joined and Pharaoh's gods died. But God not only liberates through power, God also liberates through acts of mercy. I want you to see the balance here. Our God is mighty and strong, but our God is merciful and offers to all the chance to repent. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to jump in a little segment of the first 14 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, the month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and one for his household. Verse five. The animal you choose must be year old males without defect and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month 
when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they will take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plagues will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So I want you to see, when God stretches out his mighty arm and hand, he does not miss what he's reaching for. His power is never not enough. And yet in the midst of that powerful display to the entire world of his glory and majesty and his abilities, his sovereignty, God also is merciful and kind. And he says to his people, very specifically, on the 10th day, you're to choose a ram, a goat, a lamb, you're to, you're to choose one of your best. But can I paraphrase? Don't give me your leftovers. Don't give me your garbage. Don't give me the thing you don't value. Give me something that shows me that you trust me. And it has to be without blemish. You're going to kill it on the 14th day. You're going to take blood from that animal and you're going to put it over the door frame of your home. And those that do these things, those that obey me, they will be protected. Those who choose not to, Egyptian and Hebrew, they will suffer. My judgment is on them. My judgment is correct. And I am offering you an escape. At midnight, I will come and I will come to each house and my angel will come in and take the firstborn son of all your flocks and all the people. But when I see the blood, my angel will pass over and this will bring the judgment on the gods of Egypt and will also bring the judgment on the Israelite people should they not trust. But don't be mistaken. The Israelites were not saved because of their godliness. The Israelites were not saved because they were better people. The Israelites were saved because they were obedient. And in a world that says, no, no, as long as I believe that God is good, everything's going to work out. No, there takes an allegiance to obedience to be passed over. When God asks us in his mercy to respond to him, we should respond every time. 600,000 men and families are liberated that night. When the angel passes through and takes the firstborn, the people of Egypt, including Pharaoh, send them out. God told them that this would happen, that Pharaoh would send them out. And then God does this interesting thing. God says, and not only will they send you out, the Egyptians are going to pay you to go. They're going to give you riches and cattle. They're going to give you all of these things to get you away from them. And I am going to bless you in this way. All that you've ever worked for, you're going to walk out richer than you've ever been a day in your life. The riches wasn't the gift. It was provisions as they went into the promised land that they would start afresh anew and blessed. Third thing I want to point out. Not only does God lead with might, but God liberates with mercy, and God's liberation produces a testimony to his faithfulness. 
here's the take home for me. When God liberates you, you'll have a song. And it won't be a song of your might. It won't be a song of your strength. It'll be a song of his. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. I want to pause here for a moment. In some of the reading I was doing and preparing for this entire series, one of the things that was noted to me, which I thought was significant, was that Pharaoh, when he realized that the Israelites went the wrong way, they didn't go the straight way. They went the wrong way. When they went the wrong way, he knew that they were going to be run up against the Red Sea. In other words, if you can picture this, they were going into a cul-de-sac without escape. The way they went in would be the way they came out, and Pharaoh in that moment capitalizes on it. Chapter 14, if you'll turn to that, verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he made his chariots ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with the other chariots of Egypt with officials over all of them. Verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and they cried out to the Lord. Pause. Who led them to the Red Sea? Moses? No, God. Can I hearken back to my previous point? When God calls you, he's not as concerned about your comfort as he is your character. God led them to this moment in time for them to call out to him. God is not done displaying his glory. And so they terrified and cried out to the Lord. Verse 11, they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? Stop for a second, because that's funny. Here they are in the cul-de-sac against the water. 600 chariots of Egypt's finest are heading toward them to destroy them. And they looked at uh, Moses and said, hey, thanks, buddy. Nice try. Now we're going to die out here rather than Egypt, where at least we could have died comfortably. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been far better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Okay, pause. The word for fear there or being afraid that Moses uses doesn't mean you shouldn't be nervous. It, it, it doesn't say you should ignore the circumstances. It's actually a word that's used when we say the fear of the Lord. Moses is calling them in this moment to say, I know we can't escape this, but remember how we escaped Egypt. Never forget how God has delivered and his deliverance can come anywhere, anytime, anyway. Are you with me? And we continue. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. You know, I, let me put it this way. One of the things I'm learning about the way God liberates us is God doesn't call us to do a lot of fighting, but God calls us to do a lot of trusting. And sometimes the way God calls us to trust is to put us in situations we're not in control over, and he always is in control. It's never a matter of our lives being out of control. It just may be out of our control. So God will put us in position to display his might rather than our own. 
And Moses is getting it because Moses says to the people, when you are stuck in a spot that you cannot deliver yourself, do not be afraid that you're not enough. Remember who is. And this is what he calls them to do. And you guys know the story. This huge pillar, this cloud, inhabited by the angel of God that had been leading them out of Egypt, a cloud by day, fire by night, was leading them through the wilderness to this spot where they were not in control. And when the Egyptians arrived, that pillar of cloud went behind them rather than in front of them, and it stood before the Egyptian soldiers and the Israelite people, and then God did that cool thing with the Red Sea where the winds blew up in such a way that it peeled the water back and dried out the ground, and 600,000 men, family, and cattle, sheep, goats, and everything else crossed across dry land, not muddy land, dry land. And as they get to the other side, God says, because Moses had to raise his staff, he said, I want you to raise your staff again, drop it in front of the water and watch what happens. The Egyptians, the cloud moved, the Egyptians began to follow. And the Bible says something interesting. Their chariots got stuck. Their wheels wouldn't turn. I thought that was a mechanical issue. No, I actually think what happens is when the water came back, the water got muddy, the chariots got stuck, all of them were drowned in the Red Sea. Then what happens? If you will be still in the presence of God, he will deliver. He always does. Chapter 15. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Verse 11. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them by your holy dwelling. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. The Lord reigns forever and ever. And as you continue to read chapters 15 and 16, not only did they sing, this will make some of you uncomfortable, they danced. And they danced and they danced. Why do you dance? Because you were just delivered from your worst nightmare into God's promise. These epic cycles of liberation we're going to see over the next few weeks occur again and again and again where God calls someone to step out of their comfort into a calling and that calling sends them to places where only God can deliver and God delivers every time. You see, I want you to know that you and I stand under a greater deliverer than Moses. We stand under a deliverer named Jesus who stood up to the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Paul says, and he called for our release from slavery. He not only called for it, he demanded it. He performed miracles that broke Satan's power. He, he performed miracles over demons. He performed miracles over nature. He performed miracles over illness. And he performed miracles over death. Everything that Satan threatens us with, Jesus redeemed. He's our Passover lamb, a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, God's best. 
And when we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, death and punishment and judgment will pass over us by the mercy of God. He's the pillar that guides us. He's the pillar that protects us. And he's the pillar that delivers us. And one day we'll gather around a table, the great Passover meal, where we will celebrate the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who gave himself to us. I want you to think about the gospel found in this story of liberation because the song that Moses sings, you and I can sing. Spend some time in Exodus 15 this week. Spend a few moments reading this slowly and look who does the work and look who receives the blessing. Think about your leaving the Egypt of your slavery, even through a wilderness period, arriving one day to sit around the throne of God, singing a song where we testify not to what we did, but where we truly testify to everything he's given us. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.